0: So welcome everybody. I think some people are still coming in, but welcome to this second event in our series on the re- results of the research project on uh, NGO contracting and welfare services in China. We've already had one presentation to those who are newly joining now, and we will now have our second presentation by Dr. Rahina. Uh, Dr. Regina and Junto Martinez um, on the effects of contracting on NGO autonomy in China. And for those who were here in the last session, excuse me for repeating, but there may be new people who've entered now uh, to join the um, events. So I just want to rehearse again that the, this series of events arises out of a, an ESRC-funded research project on the contracting of welfare services to NGOs in China. And this was an international team of researchers involving Professor um, Karen Fisher at the University of New South Wales, Professor uh, Xiaoyuan Shang at Beijing Normal University, myself and uh, Dr. Yuan Chu at um, London School of Economics, Dr. Regino and Hunter Martinez at London School of Economics, and um, at Beijing Normal University and the researches and the results we are presenting are based on research conducted over about three years in five locations in China and include extensive uh, search on Chinese and English language documentation on the policy on the laws and existing research on this subject and also 120 qualitative interviews uh, with NGOs, with academics and experts, and with government officials. So it's quite a large project actually, and the three questions that uh, we were addressing in the research were um, around what what was the policy development, legislative development of this new policy in China? Uh, Why do NGOs want to engage in contracting or not? Why does the government actually want to do contracting out to NGOs uh, of Welfare Services or not? And what were the best practices? What could we learn from the um, experiences of China so far in contracting? And how does that maybe vary to international uh, practice? And what kinds of models of Welfare Services were being provided? So those were the key uh, questions. Uh, driving the research and it it ra- it raised much broader questions around welfare about authoritarianism uh, new public management uh, theory and so on which, which are all very interesting um, so just a few things on etiquette zoom etiquette um, please keep your microphones off for the moment um, you you may have your video on or off we don't mind um, and the this session will be recorded And At the end, uh, there will be the opportunity to ask questions either through the chat function or through the raising your hand function. So please feel free to do that. And uh, Regina will speak for around 15 minutes. And so I'll turn now to Regina and ask her to begin her presentation on the effects of contracting on NGO autonomy in China. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jude. Um, Thank you everybody for attending the the session as well. Um, As Jude has introduced, um, I'll be presenting our findings on the impact of government contracting of services on NGOs autonomy. Um, Jude has already introduced the empirical basis of the study, uh, but this particular paper is based on interviews with over 80 social organizations in China. Uh, in, different, in five different locations. I will use the term NGO throughout the presentation instead of social organization for uh, the ease of speech. Uh, although I acknowledge that there's a, a debate around using a term NGO in China because the term it's complicated in China, the translation is complicated and also the, the categorization and definition within China is complicated. But I'll uh, carry on with the term NGO. Um, As I said, interviews were conducted in five different locations and we have uh, NGOs working, as Jude has mentioned, in the sector of uh, welfare services for people living with HIV AIDS, uh, children with disabilities and migrant workers. Uh, We've covered uh, a significant array of NGOs uh, to include uh, variability in registration status, origin, size, funding source, organizational or ethos with the aim of ex- extensive expansive representation of uh chinese ngos and we've also included in- ngos that have and do not have contracting experience um the, the paper examines how contracting affects ngos on a variety of issues but i will be focusing on the issue of autonomy uh, in this presentation i will be focusing uh on the question of autonomy, but of course we have to consider that the political landscape in China of state society relations and state NGO relations is also complicated, as we've just, some of us heard from from Jude in the previous presentation. Um, It's been very much debated and there's uh, there's, um, the, the starting point of the question of if there is existing autonomy for NGOs in China or, or not. Uh, I will depart from the assumption that there, there is space of autonomy for NGOs, um, it, despite there being very many different layers of state control and intervention, such as many of those mentioned by Jude in the previous presentation, re- regulations on registration within the civil affairs, officials intervention, um, the Public Security Bureau monitoring requirement of establishing a party committee within the NGO and whether or the or not the party committee has any function or or does or not intervene at all in NGOs. Um, these are all mechanisms of control of an authoritarian state. And um, I will still depart from the assumption that there is space for autonomy and, and NGOs independence. Uh, without tapping more into that debate, um, I will carry on, and uh, I will argue and we will argue in this paper that uh, we, what we found is contracting has actually added new layers of control or state control of NGOs that actually did, uh, constrain that space of autonomy that they previously had. Um, I will outline details of how this happens through contracting, through financial dependency and managerialism. Uh, these result in NGOs' mission drift and compromised NGOs' autonomy uh, overall. First, the issue of financial dependency has to be put in context, uh, as with the implementation of the N- overseas NGO law in 2017 has restricted uh, access to foreign funding and alternative sources of funding has shrunk. So basically, NGOs have been moved to enforce to contracting of services as almost their main, and if not, the their only source of funding. Some NGOs we found that have uh, 70 to 90% of the annual income coming from government contracts. Uh, and for many, this is a matter of survival. Uh, however, government contract uh, funding is not necessarily sustainable for NGOs because we found it's insufficient is insecure and it's unstable. In insecure uh, government uh, preferences, we found that can change from year to year as well as priorities. This means that NGOs change their focus according to the priorities of the government to meet, uh, to, to be able to win contracts, which this aff- affects their mission and affects their decision-making process on what they're gonna be working on and affects overall their work with the community. Uh, we had an interviewee that emphasized, quote, each year the government has a program and you just need to to change the the project accordingly, end of quote. Um, This obviously makes makes clear that it affects the decision-making process and it affects how an organization might plan and might focus on on what area of work. Uh, Contracting funding, we found also it's unstable. We found that a uh, majority of contracts are one to two years. Uh, they're usually renewed yearly, um, and it's not secure, of course, at the beginning of the first year that it will be renewed on the second year. Um, this does not provide a sustainable source of income for NGOs to plan long-term interventions, and neither does it, does it uh, provide any sustainability for service users, of course, but that is another question. In terms of NGOs autonomy, it means that NGOs have little capacity to design their own intervention, services, and activities in a way that uh, they can engage long term with the community. Uh, We've also found that uh, it, funding is insufficient. Government contract funding does not cover full cost of services. Some contracts already stipulate that between 10 to 20% of the service has to be cross-subsidized with Uh, the NGO's own own funding. And as we've seen, there's a shrinking of alternative sources of funding, so it puts a lot of pressure on NGOs. The majority of contracts also do not cover for staff wages, venue, or for example, administrative costs that are related to the the service. Um, Additionally, we found that price is established by the government and in many cases cannot be negotiated so it means that NGOs have to conform with the price even if it doesn't cover as we've seen the, the full cost of the, of the service and in many cases there's also payment in uh, ar- arrears so much of the of the, of the payment cam- comes at the very end of the project which also means that again NGOs have to cross-subsidize and advance payment uh, of the services uh, with their own uh, source of, uh, sources of funding. So, in terms of NGOs of not autonomy, this means that um, that uh, NGOs funding, time, and especially staff efforts are de- are deflected from from the 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 mission, the NGO's own mission, in order to p- deliver the service contract, and it compromises the autonomy of the NGO to manage its own finances and its own staff. As NGOs financially depend on the government. They are explicitly and implicitly pressured to deliver to contracts. Contracts add a layer of managerialism that affects how an NGO is governed and the strategy of the NGO, and this leads to mission drift. As we know contracts come with uh, significant uh, administrative burdens and administrative requirements, such as uh, specified outputs, monitoring and evaluation, and performance performance measurements, administrative requirements, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, that obviously, in many cases, also means that it makes the NGO standardized, standardized and professionalized services and their own operations. But in many cases, it also means that um, it adds a great deal of managerial and performance requirements that add to the bureaucratic workload of NGOs and that that drives away uh, staff and NGOs efforts to focus on the work, the service and engaging with the community. They prioritize meeting targets required by the government as Jude has mentioned before as well in in her previous presentation. Upwards accountability to to the government is prioritized over meeting the needs of uh, service users or members of the NGO or the target group. We have an, a quote from an interviewee that emphasized, quote, a lot of the NGOs energy goes to respond to the government's expectations and requirements. The administrative work is very high, end quote. We found that um, NGOs depart uh, from their own aims and, and mission. And this is especially the case from, uh, for NGOs working in specific sectors, such as sectors of um, LGBTQ+, or migrant workers, and uh, especially NGOs with rights-based agendas. Certain areas of work are not included in service contracting. Of course, the government creates lists of, uh, of services that is uh, willing to contract. And for example, rights protection is not, is not considered within, within these, these, these lists. So NGOs working on issues can either not bid for contracts, uh, but then they have to face the financial dearth of not having any alternative sources of funding. They have to refocus their, um, their work to meet government expectations and priorities in order to win contracts and then be financially, financially viable, or abandon the line of work of, uh, of rights protection, for example, or areas of work that the government is not willing to support. Um, This again is especially the case for rights based NGOs that uh, also engage in advocacy. Advocacy is uh, uh, out of the question in terms of um, certain aspects of certain areas of work uh, as migrant workers, for example. Um, We've seen that NGOs self-censor, and, uh, or either are re- facing repression in order, like, in order to, to if, if they engage in an advocacy. Um, as I mentioned, they self censor or they have to abandon their line of work of, of a- activism and advocacy. And this means that they, they can't voice the needs of the marginal, of some groups that are marginalized. So basically, s- social need is depoliticized. Through service service contracting, as a, an interviewee very succinctly emphasized, we uh, I'm going to use the last quote here. It is a big dilemma in Chinese governance. Government wants wants services and is happy to contract, but does not want strong NGOs that operate independently. We want to be non governmental non governmental. Emphasized, end quote. So. Um, we found that uh, many of these effects on NGOs autonomy uh, are actually converging with, uh, with findings from, from liberal democratic countries that have a long history or a longer history of uh, an experience of contracting of services. And we, we argue that this is uh, not deriving specifically from the question of the nature of the political regime as they're different, as Jude has emphasized in the previous uh, presentation. They accompany the policy of government contracting of services. Financial dependency and managerialism are part and parcel of contracting of services. Um, plenty of evidence has been produced that show these same effects in countries like UK, the US, Australia, Canada, um, Sweden, etc. Um, and this convergence points out to the, the, the issue that contracting of services, um, Derives from uh, a po- a policy principles that are based on ideas of new public management that focus on efficiency, performance, managerialism, etc. In the Chinese case, uh, however, um, these mechanisms of control are adding to to the layers of of authoritarian control that NGOs face. So that basically, the political scenario adds to this and Uh, fully compromises the NGO's autonomy, which then means that they're even now with contracting, they're even more asphyxiated by financial pressures and managerial requirements that are built into the contract. We therefore conclude that the Chinese government's strategic adoption of government contracting of services has been aimed at crafting and controlling Uh, a a service-oriented NGO sector that meets social need and delivers services, however, it undermines uh, the growth of an all-encompassing civil society that covers both rights and needs. And um, I will leave it here uh, because I I think that it will be very fruitful if we can engage in some sort of conversation and ask, uh, answer your questions. Very much looking forward to to your questions, thank you. Okay, um, thank you very much, Regina.
0: That was very concise and to the point and um has opened up a lot of questions around uh, the effects of contracting on NGOs um, in China uh, and more generally. So I'd like to open it up now for questions, either raising your hand or um, using the chat function. Right, I have a question here, um, Regina. Um, I would like to inquire whether registration status of NGOs, oops, it's gone. Where's it gone? Um, whether registration and status of NGOs has an impact on contracting? In particular, can any not registered organisation sell services to the government? And can NGOs registered as businesses be contract partners of the government?
1: Yes. Thank you for the question. Um, so the the policy uh, is is contracting of services to social forces, and that means that both private sector uh, and registered as business can apply and can bid for contracts. Um, the issue here is that the how the government selects organizations and if registration matters or not might depend on how the market of NGOs and how the market of social forces looks in a place in a city. So in places where there's uh there's fewer organizations that can bid to contracts, uh governments we've found that that they allow for NGOs that have not full registered but have uh applied for registration. So they've submitted the registration application. They've pay and so they've they've submitted that. They are allowed to to bid for contracts and in some cases given that there's not enough providers they are contracted uh, without full registration status yes um, but it depends as, as i said on on how the market of service providers looks in a, in a specific place thank you i have another question <coughs> question here from uh, professor
0: karen fisher would you like to comment on how this compromise on autonomy affects
1: the sectors you researched? Yes, um, thank you, uh, Karen. There is a difference, obviously, and as I, as I mentioned, uh, it affects greatly on, on sectors where there are more NGOs that have re- rights-based agendas and rights-based uh, directions. So in the sector of migrant workers and labor NGOs, there's the effect is uh, much more palpable than what we've found in in children in children's welfare, for example. Um, in in the sector of NGOs that work on, on migrant workers' issues, A, there's, there's no funding and there's very little serv- uh, range of services that are being uh, contracted. Uh, A, because local governments don't have budgets that directly go for migrant workers because welfare services are linked to the registration status of uh, citizens, which as we know, uh, is back in their hometown and not in the place of work. So uh, that's one of the reasons why local governments don't, uh, they, they put forward as they don't purchase or they don't contract services for for, for migrant workers. But then again, it's a sector where you have um, a great deal of uh, activism and advocacy, and it's much more challenging for NGOs to to bid for contracts.
0: Thank you. We have um, next a question on the international civil society cooperation. So what are the effects of contracting uh, that you observed on NGO autonomy in China concerning international civil society cooperation, apart from the funding issue? Like, for example, does it affect potential partners, cooperation topics, project concepts, work, language? That's
1: a very good question. Um, so the first, the first effect is, of course, on the the um, on international NGOs have to register in China and have to pass the public security bureau check, and they have to be registered with the public security bureau check. So there's also the issue of uh, the funding and the funding issue that. Um, uh, NGOs cannot tap into, or have much more difficulty accessing foreign funding from international civil society. There is, um, I, I would assume that as well, the, the the issue of language and especially again, the, the NGOs working on rights-based uh, agendas would have more difficulty in, in cooperating with international donors and international civil society organizations, yes. Um, in terms of potential partners, as I said, if if international NGOs are not registered within China, then it's much more difficult um, to access that cooperation. Thank you. Um, I have another question from
0: Ruth uh, Kinua. How do you build in flexibility in the contract to mitigate the risk of infringing contract terms Mm. when adaptation is necessary For effective service provision. So what is the room to make the contract more flexible to enable effective service provision? Is there any room at all?
1: That is a very good question Um, and it it taps into the the issue of if there is possibility for NGOs to negotiate the terms of, of contract. Uh, and what are the rights and responsibilities uh, of NGOs in this process? And what we found is that terms of contract are very much defined by government. So the the space for NGOs to really negotiate and and build in into them their own uh, their own terms, bring their own terms to the to the contracts, is, is very 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 uh, reduced, if if not inexisten.t um, I'm not sure if that's that's exactly what the the speaker was the the, the question was aiming at um.
0: okay maybe I'll leave that for the for um uh Quinoa who asked it I mean to follow up in, in the chat mm-hmm. um in the meantime I have a question from uh professor Harriet Evans um about crowdfunding and the search for charitable support are the limits on the extent to which egos can crowd for, can go for crowdfunding as a way of obtaining funds. This is, I think it's meant to be NGOs, not NGO- egos, can NGO, uh, NGO, NGOs could go for crowdfunding as a way of obtaining funds. This is particularly important for NGOs working on so-called marginal issues yes. and thus can't register. Yes, this
1: is, this is a very important issue and uh, now, um, it's only with the 2016 charity law that allows for some of this uh, alternative crowdfunding or fund like found fundraising to be to be done by NGOs that are registered as charities so this is another another way in which uh, the state is controlling who is who is doing this and accessing other other sources of funding you have to be registered as a charity, that means there's another, another, line, another stream of uh, administrative ordeals that an NGO would have to go through in order to apply for a, a status of, of a charity and then be able to do uh, crowdfunding and, and fundraising. Thank you, and a question from Huey Um How do gov-
0: NGO leaders' ties with the government moderate the effects of contracting on NGO autonomy so those with government ties may be able to negotiate with the government on the terms of contracting and their autonomy may not be compromised but actually may be enlarged, it's a very good point, but yes. those who without, tie- without government ties may face autonomy problems much more.
1: This is uh, it's, a, it's a great point uh, and you're very right um, to raise this there is distinction between organizations that have already uh, an established relationship with governments and they have an ease into applying for, for contracts and bidding for contracts. Uh, definitely, we found that trust and, and relations with local governments is one of the main uh, aspects that defines and determines if a, an organization might win or not a contract. Um, and obviously, this is not only the case of China, and this happens everywhere. But in the case of China, um, there are organizations that are actually set up by local officials and local governments in order to, to, to bid for contracts, win contracts and deliver services. So definitely uh, you could argue that these organizations have more autonomy because they're already within the scope and within the the, um, the circle of the government and they have direct access to government so they can advocate and affect policy. Um, this is the whole debate around the autonomy of NGOs in China and, and, and civil society in China, whether close, closeness to government opens up new spaces and new, new potential for autonomy. Uh, what we've, we, we are arguing here is that, actually, to some organizations, and especially to organizations that are already existing prior to the, the rolling out of the, of the 2013 contracting policy nationally, to those organizations that have rights-based agendas, there is a constraining uh, space for their autonomy.
0: Thank you and I have a question from Kester Akhtar, can free market mechanisms help ensure the goals of NGOs aren't compromised and can NGOs do more themselves to become more flexible in their operating environment to ensure the upholding their own goals? Um.
1: That is a good question. <laughs> um, the market mechanism brings, of course, brings in pros and cons for our organizations. And uh, we found as well that there's a lot of, um, of constraints that derive from actually open markets uh, because of the issue of in economies of scale, for example, and the prioritizing of larger organizations over smaller organizations, for example, because of um, pressure on employment conditions, given that price, if price is uh, is open to, to the market, which in many cases isn't because it's pre-decided by the government, but if prices are open to the market, then it has a double effect on, on employment conditions and and uh, wages of staff, for example. So in terms of opening more spaces and, and making NGOs become more flexible, um, I'm, with the data that we have, I would be, I would be uh, skeptical about uh, market mechanisms actually bringing more flexibility to the environment of uh, NGOs and NGOs' autonomy. Thank you. because um, sorry sorry one one addition it's also because uh the the market mechanisms are controlled by the state so the state is already uh, implementing some some distortions to that to the market mechanism as well
0: yeah all right we uh, we have another uh, question from gosia which is also related to the international um funders. Um, I couldn't help but notice that similar goals displacement was taking place before social contracting phase, with foreign funders who also forced many NGOs to refocus their work to suit their agenda. So, this begs the question, how and if can NGOs remain independent and focused on their missions, any under any system of funding or governance, is it possible, and how?
1: Certainly, that's that's a great question that we should also uh, open up for um, people from from the NGO sector uh, itself. What we found is um, definitely there is similarity with with uh, what we, what is. Upwards accountability to donors. It doesn't mean that it has to be government or it has, or international donors. It's upwards accountability, and there's uh, there's convergence across China and liberal democratic countries with the introduction of of contracting. And this, as you as you rightly mentioned, happened before the introduction of contracting with foreign funders. Um, how can NGOs remain? Um, remain independent and remain autonomous and not fully um, prioritize upwards accountability. Well, we see that this is through the mechanisms of self fundraising and, for example, using, being able to use funds from other sources uh, that allow for their own agendas and allow for their own mission to be pursued. So, it related to a question that was asked before, uh, international civil society organizations, in the in the case of, for example, labor organizations, would be to join up with international trade unions. That would be more willing to um, to, to support lines of work that are not supported by by government. In this case, for example. Yes, I have a
0: number of very interesting questions here. Um, I, yeah, on autonomy, I'm going to bring in the question of um, And, Vu, woo, woo, Thank you for your presentation. You talked about the autonomy of NGOs, but I'm not clear, this is a very good question, which angle of autonomy you're focusing on. Autonomy in terms of what, in terms of state criticism, but my research shows that sometimes NGOs don't want to criticize the government, instead mm-hmm. they just want to collaborate with the government. Yep.
1: Yeah, perfectly, perfectly legitimate um, and it is there's organizations that are set up by uh, in, in order to actually engage in services contracting and that's the main purpose uh, that the, the main argument here at the end of the presentation is about or NGOs that engage in rights based agendas and that have a mission in an area of work that is beyond services provision. Right. So the autonomy of organizations that has to do with the capacity of making decisions, governing the organization, uh, deciding and uh, designing their own uh, interventions and activities, instead of uh, delivering to contract and delivering services that are pre-decided and predetermined by the government. Thank you. Um,
0: Then I have a question also from, Kw, Catherine Wilhelm, yeah, regarding the intersection of domestic NGO contracting and foreign NGO law. I found that some domestic NGOs were told by their own PSUs um, and or local government agency offering the contract that they could not qualify for local government contracting if they had foreign funding, mm-hmm. from any foreign funder. Not just the question of a foreign funder with a, a license. So I think the question is, uh, is it the case that if you have foreign funding, you can't apply for contracts? And even if you are legally registered with the Public Security Bureau in China as
1: a foreign funder? Sorry, I think I'm not entirely clear about the question. If you have foreign funding... Can you
0: still apply for a government contract to deliver welfare services?
1: We found, we have cases of organizations that have have foreign funding and uh, at the same time have government contracts, yes. The foreign funding though is within the scope of what I I mentioned about the overseas NGO law that is monitored and comes from foreign organizations that have already uh, established credentials within China, within the newly built uh, regulations. Thank you. And I have a question from
0: Holly Snape. Um, You mentioned your research covered NGOs that had and hadn't been involved in contracting. Did you find any cases of NGOs with more experience of contracting that had found ways to retain their own focus for stating the desire to do so, rather than experiencing mission drift? I mean, is mission...? Yeah. So. You had so, research. If it did, you find that NGOs with more experience of contracting had found ways to keep their focus, keep their mission focus, um, and didn't therefore experience mission drift. We would.
1: I, I would have to. We would have to go back to the to the data in order to give you like uh, specific numbers. But I think that we. I mean, we have cases in which NGOs have stopped doing contracting because. They don't want to continue doing just service delivery defined by government. They want to do their own work. Um, we found organizations that do not want to engage in service contracting because of the reason of mission drift and because they don't want to uh, go through go down that line. Uh, and we found organizations that, as the previous question posed, were, were designed and created to deliver services and that's their mission. So, indeed, they don't have mission drift because the mission is provision of services and that's what they want to do, meet, meet social need that is perfectly legitimate as well. Great. I have also
0: a question from uh, Wang Weinan. In a Chinese case, in some public service areas, there used to be a lot of international cooperation. Though it has gradually changed. For example, HIV grassroots organizations have been able to get some funding from UK China cooperation projects or the Gates Foundation. Um, similar to contracting, they sometimes think their autonomy is affected. Now, compared to the past, is there any difference? So I think we're back to the same a similar question again. Does it depend, is it inevitable? that once you accept funding from another source that you your autonomy is maybe threatened
1: i think that uh, what research is finding uh, is and pointing out across countries is that contracting does come with uh, certain requirements that mean that you might have to compromise some of your work the, the issue of managerialism and addition of bureaucratic work workloads is not an uh, something particular to China, as we've seen. Uh, it's, it's, there's convergence across countries. So that definitely pulls away a lot of the work, especially for smaller organizations that don't have uh, the capacity to have staff that is simply dedicated to monitoring and evaluation, for example, or to application for new bids. Um, then for those organizations it's much, it comes, it is related to to contracting, yes.
0: And I have a point of information from uh, Chien Fang, um, who draws our attention to a paper how Chinese non-governmental organizations manage accountability requirements from funders. This paper provides some experiences on how a Chinese grassroots NGO managed to keep its mission and uh, didn't annoy funding agencies, including government. So I think that's very useful. Thank you very much for uh, relating. Perhaps you could tell us the journal it's in, so everybody can see that. Mm. Um, I think I've captured everybody's questions. Um, If if I've missed anybody, please raise your hand. Oh, I've got one new message, two new messages. Hang on. Oh, why have they come in there? Right, they haven't yet shown up on my screen those two ones. I will just in the meantime, uh, oh we have the Chen Fan's paper if every, everybody I presume can see the chat function. We have the details there of that article. Um, we also have a reply from UN view about um, how they understood autonomy, in, which is in terms of the capacity to act. Uh, the NGOs which get contracts from the government tend to have good relationship with government. This means that these NGOs already have a given space to work within, so they have the capacity to act freely. So I think that was similar to what, uh, Regina, you had uh, replied in to, that, to another question. Yep. Okay. Um, Would anyone else like to raise a hand and pose a question? I think we have two minutes left. (laughs) Um, Okay. I think your presentation has raised, you know, a lot of issues about autonomy. And just coming in from my what I had been um, talking about, the authoritarianism. I think, you know, in other countries, my experience of of some international NGOs is that they try to make sure that they balance out um, how much funding they get from different organizations. So they may have a percentage limit. They would say, they might say, we will not have more than 30% of our total funding coming from government. And I have to say, as we did not, and Regina, maybe you can clarify here, as far as I know, we did not um, uh, encounter anyone who had, as an organization, decided they would have their own sort of limit on how much government funding they would receive. And,
1: and I, don't, I don't recall any organization putting a tap on that, but um, to some, Uh, already having 70%, uh, they considered that was a lot, because that was highly dependent on on that source of funding. So I I recall organizations that wanted to reduce the amount of contracting they were doing in order to reduce that that high dependency.
0: Yep, okay. And we have a question from uh, Tom Canning. which is not uh, showing up on my screen as such, but Tom, if you were there, would you like to raise your hand and, or, or unmute yourself?
1: Yes, yes, sorry. Um, I, oh, was wondering, something. Yep. I was wondering you know, if there are strategies that NGOs are using in order to increase their autonomy or maintain their missions within the contracting system. Um, Thank you. Yes. Uh, um. <laughs> I'm gonna. Uh, I was. I was about to say, Jude. Maybe you want to actually uh, engage with that question, uh, given that we were discussing this in, in that in the paper that uh, you were leading on as well, but. Um, there, there are definitely strategies that are that organizations are 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 engaging with in order. Like one of them is what you just mentioned, like lowering the dependency of of government funding and the percentage of of dependency of government contracts. Um, then there's too to many organizations actually engaging in government contracting means that they have access to. To, to government officials, which also means that they, they might be able eventually to, to softly advocate, and this has been posed by previous, previous research as well, uh, service service advocacy basically, advocacy through through the provision of services and being able to to already with ties with the government uh, be able to raise some of the some of the needs that the community has in a, because you have access to those to those um to those channels already um judy yeah
0: thank you very much i think we need to close here yeah, yeah. um at the end of the presentation and i'd like to thank you all very much for your very interesting questions and regina for your clear responses and um thank you i have one raised hand here from Carwin. Hang on, I'll just see. Carwin, did you want to say something? Oh no, I was just clapping because I thought it was Oh, (laughs) okay, right. So um, the events of this research program will continue tomorrow and we'll be continuing with these themes of authoritarianism and we will be having a panel discussion um, on is contracting welfare services different under authoritarianism, taking a look at China and our channel Uh, Our panellists will be uh, myself, Sean Shear, Natasha Cortes, and uh, Regina H. Martínez. And that will take place tomorrow, British summer time, from 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock. So we look forward to seeing you then, some of you and maybe some newcomers as well. So thank you very much um, for, Regina, your wonderful presentation today, and uh, for all the uh, excellent uh, questions we received. Thank you very much, and see some of you tomorrow, I hope.
1: Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks.